Thanks for joining me again on Black Teacher Matters. The podcast is all about the people and stories that shape me as a black teacher. My name is Abdel Shakur, and I'm in my 13th year of practice as a high school teacher in Evanston, Illinois. It's tragic, but most people in this country probably never had a black teacher before. This podcast is about trying to balance the books a little, to give folks an idea of what black teaching is, why it's so important, and what it could be. Now, last episode, I told a story about making kids shake my hand during my first year of teaching. I figured a handshake would create a ritual connection that would allow me to see each student before we started class. So I had them line up outside my door, give a firm handshake with eye contact and a good morning. It worked well for one of my seventh grade boys, but it wasn't for everyone. I had a girl that year who wasn't having it. She was the smallest one in class, but crossed her arms, pursed her lips, and looked at me like I was crazy. We had standoffs regularly like this. And it wasn't until my co-teacher, Hope Sheldon, took me aside and made me reflect on why this little black girl, who had a life I knew nothing about, would have a problem with being coerced into a greeting and physical contact with a grown man, even a good guy like Mr. Shakur. Luckily, I had a colleague wise enough to pull my collar to steer me away from making a huge mistake and critically damaging a relationship with a child. But so much of this job is doing the thing Alex Pate talked about last episode finding ways to decenter yourself, decenter whiteness, and your patriarchy, and whatever else baggage you got going on, so you can see the innocence of the children in front of you. This episode, I talked to author and educator Krista Wilkinson, who has been a mentor on the page in class since I was a wee little grad student back at Indiana University. She taught me a lot about this kind of reflection and how to fight to create space for students to find the questions that really matter to them. But before all that, I got a story to tell. Hope you enjoy. Like, follow, share the Black Teacher Matters podcast. And thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy. That might have to work. Robin was front row in my ninth grade English class playing with a puzzle, and I was heated. It was eighth period, the last week of school before finals, and the class learning objective posted on the overhead was, quote, prepare for finals, unquote. Students were supposed to be working on a packet modeled after the multiple choice part of the exam, but honestly, my pedagogy that day was seen. Basically, I gave these children a stack of paper and said, teach yourself today and there ain't nothing more likely to put a teacher on edge than a child disregarding thin pedagogy. Like when you know you done burnt the macaroni dinner and your kids get to picking at it, talking about, what else is there? Ain't nothing else. You better eat that food. And don't tell me nothing about no burn. The nervous girl. How dare she? Didn't she know this work was important? Didn't she know this was going to be graded? Didn't she know that I copied and double-sided and stapled that packet. Here she go, wasting precious class time to play some puzzles. I set my jaw, smoothed my shirt, and got my teacher questions ready. Is this what you're supposed to be doing right now? Did you complete the packet? Did you check your answers? Did you study with a neighbor? What else could you be studying? Did you do the extra credit? I took a step toward her, 
and then wisely, I stopped myself. First, I had to remind Abdel that I was the one who brought the Rubik's puzzles to class in the first place. Actually, they're all over. Some I can solve, most I can't. I like them because they press me to appreciate the utility of questions. After all, puzzles are just a question. How do I solve this? Composed of a thousand other questions. What should this look like? What happens if I do this? What does this turn do? As a class, if we're gonna take the risk of creating something, whether it's an idea or a poem or a story or a sketch, we have to confront the prospect of being unable to answer a question. The prospect of publicly not knowing, of being publicly a fool, inadequate. The puzzle Robin was contending with was the same pyramid style sitting on my father's bookshelf when I was a kid. Basically, it's a pyramid of smaller, multicolored pyramids. The goal is to turn the greens, the blues, the oranges, and the yellows to their matching colors. My father's apartment in East Oakland was a typical bachelor pad, and at its center was a pilly green couch, a pair of tall bookshelves, a drafting table, a coffee table, a whiteboard, and a big TV. When I stayed over, he steamed lentils and broccoli, fried pork chops, and followed it up with a slice of pineapple cake. We ate over the coffee table, and watched the 10 o'clock news with Dennis Richmond and Elaine Corral over dinner. My dad and me going off about the war on Iraq or the inadequacy of the San Francisco 49ers, 49ers or the latest antics of the white man. Every so often, he'd get excited and illustrate a concept, usually mathematical in nature, in his wide, loopy, barely legible handwriting at the whiteboard. I held that puzzle often in my father's house. Back in my class, I looked around and saw there were other students not doing their packets either. Some were chatting with each other, some were reading their own books, some were flipping through stuff on their smartphones. They took the study packet for what it was. Teacher was seating class time and they could do them. And there was Robin, still focused, her brows furrowed as the colored triangles popped and clicked in her fingers a faint smile on her lips. At the beginning of the year, I have students write a letter of introduction. Robin said her goal was to, quote, strive for greatness, unquote, but that she didn't deal with frustration well. This was true. She often sucked her teeth loudly and rolled her eyes when I assigned homework. Skirmishes over her precious cell phone occurred daily. I mean daily, like every day. And if I didn't help her first when she raised her hand, she sighed like her lungs were going to collapse. Robin often seemed annoyed in class with the work, with her classmates, with me, but she hardly ever missed an assignment. Although it was all transactionary, teacher give work, student do work, teacher gives grade. Less like an academic exploration, more like paying down a phone bill, like keeping the lights on, like paying the landlord. Robin was one of the hardest working students in my class, but without a space for innocence and inquiry, she struggled to see the joy of discovery as a possibility in school. And in my experience, Robin is typical of many black female students. According to a Georgetown study, black girls are seen as less innocent than white girls. Participants in the study judge black girls starting at five to be older, to need less support, to know more about adult topics, to need less protection, and to be more sexually aware than white girls. 
The consequences of this innocence gap is most striking when you consider black girls are suspended at twice the rate of white girls. But another consequence is that black girls are less likely to have their questions honored in academic spaces. A classroom that doesn't recognize the innocence of a child cannot truly understand the child's questions. Without the opportunity for innocence, a black girl's questions are more likely to be seen as tools of rebellion rather than inquiry. James Baldwin said a child cannot be taught by anyone who despises them. I would add that a child cannot be taught by anyone who fears their questions. And rest assured, if you have black girls in a classroom, they have questions, whether they share them with you or not. They live closest to this country's race and gender paradox and use questions to elude, survive, and resist. It's been almost 170 years since Sojourner Truth asked, ain't I a woman? And this country is still stammering to answer. Michelle Obama, Kamala Harris, and Stacey Abrams baffled the American imagination with the questions they raised just by existing. Black girls know how potent questions are, but at the beginning of the year, I noticed Robin's questions were mainly concerned with how I was exercising power in the class. Why do I have to sit there? What time is this class over? What is the homework? Is this for credit? Why are you making me do this? As a teacher, I reminded myself to routinely engage with each question as innocently as possible. Thank you so much for asking that. Without worrying if my authority was being attacked, when it was clear I would do my best to answer them completely, Robin started asking more questions, also innocent questions, that would really drive her learning. Why did the author write like this? What does this mean? How should I write this? How can I do this better? Although she said she liked to write, Robin confided that she'd never earned an A on an essay and didn't think it would ever happen. Looking at her work, I could tell she needed some help with sentence structure and supporting ideas with evidence but the biggest barrier was that she had learned to approach writing like filling out a job application or following a recipe. She couldn't identify with her words because they didn't originate in her question. Now, one of the most important anti-racist practices a teacher can implement is to give space for students to contend with their own questions. For example, instead of writing about Romeo and Juliet with a standard prompt, I had Robin's class make their own questions with a list of characters and themes. We did a group activity with character cutouts and question frames, like what does the relationship between blank and blank teach us about the theme of blank? I encouraged them to look for combinations that were strange and interesting. This ended up being messier, but it allowed students like Robin to develop and pursue the innocent questions that were important to them, the questions that they had authority over. Robin worked diligently in class and came before school and during lunch to perfect her paper. She especially agonized over writing the hook, a skill which had stumped her all year. During one of those sessions, Robin asked me what she should write. I told her to try making a strong statement and incorporate some repetition. I showed her an example, but she looked dissatisfied. Just tell me what to write, she said. Sounds like you have a writer's problem, I said. One you're more than capable of solving. She rolled her eyes and sat looking at her paper. Then she wrote, most men think being a man means showing no weakness. Most men think being a man means being violent. Most men think being a man means being in control. In this patriarchal world where gender and violence plays a big role, men are mostly the cause of tragedy. Needless to say, Robin wrote an excellent paper. Not only was it strong in its use of evidence, 
The voice displayed a sense of discovery about the material, an enthusiasm for its central question. Without a doubt, it was an A. Standing in class, watching Robin manipulate the colored tiles of that puzzle, I thought about how much we use the buzzword inquiry to describe the purpose of education. A word that is meaningless if we can't recognize the innocence of our children. If we teach them that questions are important, vital to learning, to living, and then don't create spaces that honor their innocence, we're not just wasting our most precious resource, we're committing an act of unspeakable violence. Black girls are, by and large, succeeding in the academic sphere. But when their innocence is not honored, when they aren't allowed to ask the questions that go beyond mere survival, they are robbed of life's highest purpose, the unfettered joy of discovery. I caught up with Robin a few years later when she was looking for help on her college admissions essay. She was brighter and more cheery than I'd ever seen. Things were going well and she was optimistic about getting into her top choices. When we talked about ninth grade, she told me that what I couldn't see, that she had been ex so excited to go to high school, that her mom had gotten injured that year, that she had to take on more responsibilities at home, that there was more stress, that she was unhappy. If I hadn't held myself back from judging her, if I hadn't pushed myself to pause and breathe, we would have all lost. And let me go further. The secret to teaching black girls does not involve solving their mystery like a puzzle. The secret to teaching black girls is working on your own internal puzzle, your own internal whiteness that causes you not to hold space for their innocence, for their questions. My effectiveness as a teacher of black girls is relative to my continuous policing of my own anti-blackness, my own patriarchy. When I'm at my best, I know these essential truths about black girls, and here they are. That they want to learn, that they want to be loved, that they want to feel safe, that whatever their circumstance, they come from people who sacrifice so they could have all of those things. And know that the black girl in front of you has suffered and witnessed suffering tied to judgments against her innocence. And she is still in front of you, no matter how much it took to get her into that seat in your class. And she has questions. The biggest thing about me with teaching is I want to learn something too. Like I want to learn something from the students and, and all the years I've been teaching, I always do learn something new about writing from students who are engaged with the practice in some way. We were talking about how to revise and a student was telling me a technique which I should have tried out before, but I never have about how he would put a sheet of paper over his poem and read each line and move the paper down mm -hmm. and just look at each line in isolation. Of course, I've had students do an exercise like that where they cut out things, but I've never thought about just moving the paper down and isolating each paragraph or each stanza to, and it just blew my mind. And, and suddenly he became teacher's pet. And I would be like, you know, like Jeffrey said, and everybody was like, oh, I'm so tired of hearing about Jeffrey. <laughs> That's not that smart. But it just, I was like, this is great.
first real classroom teacher was in grad school. Like, legit, here's my class. I got some keys. I'm taking roll, giving grades, the whole nine. I was at Indiana University working on an MFA in fiction and had a section of creative writing. I had taught here and there, but never as a teacher of record responsible for actual learning. I had taken creative writing classes before, but never at the grad school level. I had been in mostly white environments before, but never this Bloomington, shall we say. Being cool, sage, and in control was my brand, but looking back at my younger self, I could see how I was overwhelmed in a mug. I had ideas for a thousand things I wanted to do and knew how to do about 10 of them well. That's why Crystal Wilkinson was a blessing. Not only did she help me get into IU, she was wise counsel to us grad students who taught sections of creative writing for her. In her graduate short story cycle class, she empowered us to be autodidacts and make our own meaning about the short story form. And she did all that while remaining firmly black, firmly affirmation, and firmly herself. She is the award-winning author of The Birds of Opulence, Water Street, and Blackberries, Blackberries. She currently teaches at the University of Kentucky, where she is Associate Professor of English in the MFA and Creative Writing Program. She's also one of my favorites, whose teaching still sticks to my bones in leaner moments, especially her attitude towards being a learner in the classroom. Although this is my job uh, as a professor, it's your job as, uh, as students, we each have our jobs, but really to be a writer, you have to be a reader and you have to, to reach out and grab the things that you need to pour into your own individual writing. So some things I say may just whiz by you, like imagine like little miniature airplanes or something whizzing by with all of these concepts. But every once in a while, one of them will be what you need right now. So you have to, to be engaged in the learning process. You have to be an autodidact and you have to reach out and grab that when it comes because that's what you need right then. But you can't think of it as a, a fishnet where you're trying to catch it all at once. But the, as the things come to you, catch them one at a time and what you need most, catch that first and apply it to your writing. Sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. Students are often surprised that I've been so kind and I will sit and talk about their issues and talk about the assignments. And if they don't, if they're not performing as autodidacts and doing their own thinking and doing their own work, they're surprised in the end that they somehow didn't get a passing grade. And they always say, ah, but I thought you liked me. And I'll say, I do, I still like you. You're great. We can go have, well, back in the day when the outside was open, right? <laughs> we can go across the street and have tea and talk about it if you want, but you're still gonna get this D minus because you didn't do the work. If Crystal takes you out to coffee to explain that D minus, hopefully you come away understanding the meaning of the word autodidact, one who produces questions and directs their own learning. Teaching kids how to be autodidacts is as silly as teaching them how to be creative. They already are. I know that. Every time my two-year-old Sonny looks up and sweetly asks, why your head like that? 
in school, in adults, in society that quash the autodidactic impulse in the name of obedience and order. Now, if you want to raise an autodidact, take a cue from Crystal's grandparents. They were quiet folk who raised her in rural Kentucky and taught her how much you could learn in silence. My grandparents raised me and they were sort of my first um, teachers. And what I remember, and I thought this, of course, was this was my norm. Um, so I thought that this was was normal. And I find, found out that people talk a lot more than what happened in my household. I was raised by two very quiet people. <laughs> and so I'm also a very quiet person. But I think that's where I get the leaving room for other people. Because there was a lot of silence and solitude in our house, which was not, there was no discomfort. That's just how we were. And even when someone started speaking, if my grandfather started speaking or my grandmother started speaking, we would give them time to to talk before you responded. So solitude and, and silence and sort of the rhythm of those were important to me. So I learned that, I think, in the household that I grew up in, mm -hmm. of leaving room for other people to say something, for their, their words to sort of fill up the room and get to you and settle in you before you respond. And I found out once I got into the world that that makes other people uncomfortable, that people are like, say something, or am I supposed to say something now? And I, so I think that um, that's something that I bring in the classroom. My first years of teaching were all about outrunning silence. That tension Crystal talked about terrified me because it felt like fertile ground for chaos. Too much quiet, too much space in the room, and before you know it, some enterprising youngster shoves your class off its axis with a joke or even a heavy sigh. Later, I learned that I didn't own the silence in my class. I wasn't responsible for it because it was a resource, like air, that was produced by our collective decision to not speak. And since it was shared, it was also a means for shared meaning making. If a question sparked silence, I'd remind myself to take a breath and smile. I had to let my students know that silence was not the enemy, that it didn't make anyone guilty, that I was gonna love them whether they answered or not, that none of us would be destroyed or demeaned by it, that we could feel its weight and allow ourselves to think, to feel, to not know. The COVID teaching era has put this method to the test because silence is no longer an infrequent visitor in our class. She sits front row in my Zoom sessions. But it's the same principle. The silence is us, and we're navigating it together. I take my breath, smile, and before too long, hopefully, someone steps into the space to teach us something. Although making space for silence was central to her upbringing, Crystal picked up a few important cues from church. You see, her small hometown was mostly white, but she had a strong black church community led by one of her most influential teachers, the Reverend William H. Mills Jr. Reverend William H. Mills Jr. was a very formal free will Baptist minister 
who had all the trappings of this sort of wonderment. He was the head of our church and he always had a pearl handled cane and he always had a perfectly quaffed beard and slick back hair and he was always suited and he was um very much reminded me of uh i don't know martin luther king like when i would listen to take uh, recordings of of people like that uh, of the great black orators his cadence reminded me of that and he was um a teacher too because he not only you know preached the gospel he was always telling us something about history or uh, telling us something about philosophy from the pulpit in such a way that was very professorial. His hands would always move a particular way. And so that sort of idea of sort of walking back and forth, which also makes students, I don't know if I did that back then when we were teaching together, but um, it's something that I've done over the years uh, especially the larger the class is, the more that I, more I do that. So walking back and forth, sometimes I'll walk up and down the aisles and the students are like, oh gosh, what is she <laughs> But after they get used to it, I think they enjoy it because it's a way, I think it's a way to be, even to, to discipline and be kind, like particularly with the young folks that have just come out of high school, sometimes they'll, act up in that large 130 person classroom and so i'll i'll talk and i'll walk over and sort of stand close to somebody and i'll say well you know jenny what do you think uh and i just saw jenny on her uh, or TikTok doing something that she shouldn't be doing um and um and then to do it with kindness Although Crystal learned so much from her family and church community, school was a whole other story. It was difficult to see herself in the books she read and the people who taught her. In church, uh, I had teachers, but I, I just that just dawned on me. I had never had, I never had a black teacher from kindergarten through college. Really? So I, I supplemented with magazines and books. The drugstore in our little town would order magazines if I asked them to. So they showed me what was on their list of the, the black magazines they had. So I just went crazy. I was ordered, I ordered Jet, I ordered Ebony, <laughs> I ordered Essence when Essence hit. And then I had the weekly readers in school and I would do the same thing. I'd go through those little things and every book that had a black face on it, mm-hmm. whether I was really interested when I read the description or not, I would mark them, beg my grandmother for the money and then wait for those weekly readers to come in. So there was a lot of sort of, and I guess that's where the idea, I never thought about it till now that we're talking. Uh, I guess that's where that sort of, empowerment that I try to give to students comes from because I had to I had to be an autodidact myself I think I could have come to the ideas that I had on my own earlier if I'd had 
a black teacher. I think if I'd had a black teacher, I would have moved toward teaching earlier than I did if I'd seen myself. I always wanted to be a teacher, but since I didn't have a black teacher, the same way I always wanted to be a writer, but I didn't didn't see any black writers. I didn't know of any black writers. So it was something I sort of kept to myself until I was able to do my own research and find black writers, black teachers. Uh, hello, uh, dear listener. It's me, Abdel. Now, full disclosure, Crystal and I recorded this interview some weeks back. And although we had a great conversation, we did not address the elephant in the room. It's been 15 years, but I still feel bad about something petty I did back at IU. Something petty I did to Crystal Wilkinson, of all people. Now, I was in the, fin- excuse me, I was in the final stages of editing the show, and I realized that I had to call her back up. And we were going to have to talk about it, if she was open to it. And she was. So, here's what happened. I felt like I, I kind of like... I think we both did. When I thought about it, I think we both um, uh-huh. kind of sidestepped that a little bit. Because I think I said something like, I didn't think you liked me or something like that. But, um, so yeah, neither of us brought it up. Yeah. Well, I felt like you were more like, you were more open to it, but I was definitely like, okay, okay. <laughs> like, I didn't, I mean, cause I, I feel like that's one of, um, when I think about you and just how much I appreciate you, that, that moment does just stick in my mind. Cause I'm like, oh gosh, that was kind of, you know, I wish it hadn't went that way. So spill it, right? Here's what happened. I was in Crystal's short story cycle class. It's the end of the semester of my first year at Indiana University. The holidays are coming up. We had a great lively class, but I was feeling Grinch energy. I had not emerged as the rock star of my fiction workshop. There were people who were just as talented or more talented than I. Teaching introduction to creative writing to freshmen had not been the transformative experience I had hoped. And I was missing my boo, my rock, the love of my life, Candace was really good at talking me down when I go too far. Anyways, that happened to be the day that Crystal was doing course evaluations. Y'all see where this is going, right? I dogged Crystal's class. I don't even remember what I wrote. Some of it positive, but I definitely pointed out some things that I saw as shortcomings in her teaching. All that stuff you heard her talk about, that cool stuff about not rushing things so that you leave space for others and the power of silence and helping students be autodidacts. I had a problem with that. I thought the class should be taught a different way. My way. So I let it rip. Funny thing was that I almost immediately knew I had made a mistake. While the class was chatting away feeling good, I was plotting to figure out what I was gonna do next. When everyone looked like they were done, Crystal asked for a volunteer to take the surveys to the English department. Maybe if I collected the forms, I could go back and look at what I wrote or rip it to shreds. But before I could say anything, my classmate Jeff jumped up and cheerfully volunteered. 
He collected the stack and slid them in the packet, and I felt dread settle in my stomach. I got this close to running after him down the hall to get my form back, but then I didn't. But I think you came to me maybe even before I saw them because I wasn't allowed to look at them until after the semester was over. And I can't really remember that part, but I remember you, uh, I don't think I had had seen them yet. And, and you came in with um, a CD. <laughs> you came in with these gifts of apology. <laughs> and I think at the time I didn't even fully know, but you told me that you'd said some things and then later on I saw them. Um, but I remember you being, I didn't know what was going on, but I remember you being, um, because, you know, I was a mother by then and my son was an adult by then, a young adult. And, and so in some ways your energy and that sort of masculine energy reminded me of my son. So I wasn't, I think my feelings were hurt, but I wasn't like, I was like, this young man is like got some stuff going on because I remember even my sort of slow drag the way that I teach and I'm sort of quiet and rambling and sort of the slow burn of that class um I feel like you were like hey, let's go let's, I'm, I'm here to learn you know, teach me something let's this ain't what I expected like let's go get on with it woman <laughs> that was the kind of energy that I uh felt from you and I was like Okay, well, I'm not changing, you know. You know, I love you, brother. Like, you know, chill out or don't chill out. Let's <laughs> let's let's get this together. And um, I think it hurt my feelings more than I was worried about it hurting me professionally, because I was so happy to have black students and to have more black students that semester than I than I'd had the the first semester I taught. So I was like. Yes, and I try to put, you know, as many um, black uh, short story cycles on that list that I that I could, and I was eager about the presentations that you all were going to make, and so I was like, dang, young man. <laughs> My graduate um, class evaluations were were good. Um, it was a lot of the young uh, white undergraduates that I had real big problems with as far as them being racist, you know, coming from that area, coming, some of them coming from rural Indiana, coming from uh, white supremacist families, and uh, really not thinking me capable of teaching them anything or, or wanting to be held accountable um, in my course and in my courses. And that was, um, I was taken aback more uh, by that in Indiana than, than anything that's even slightly similar that I've experienced in Kentucky. Um, but, even with that, I didn't, I think my, like I said, my feelings were hurt, but I didn't take it deeply personal. I mean, on one hand I did, but I sort of 
still thought we were cool. And especially when you came in and you, you I, I can't remember, you came in bearing gifts. I can't remember what else you brought me. Uh, I don't know if it was a book, but I know you brought me a CD comp compilation with, with several songs in it and, and um, maybe a card. Maybe, maybe you brought me a card. Um, and it stuck with me and I, I think I spent a number of years and I think I alluded to that in our, in our first conversation, I sort of, um, you know, in some ways it, it rolled off my back and in other ways I've, I've always thought of you fondly, but I've always thought, oh yeah, that, I remember that. <laughs> Well, can I say, I, I think for me, uh, one of the, you know, one of the big reasons why you're so important to me is that um, you were somebody from the beginning, I could tell really believed in like me, you mm -hmm. know, and like what I was trying to like do. And, uh, and that never like wavered, even when, you know, we, you know, this happened. Right. Um, and I guess it made me really kind of, cause I think even the things that you, you've mentioned like this kind of, come on, what's going on? What are we doing? That's just me too, by the way. I'm not even mm -hmm. going <laughs> to, <Yeah. laughs> IU <laughs> has its own thing, <laughs> but you know, I've been Mr. Know-it-all for like a long time. You know? like I, that's just kind of my vibe. And I try to really keep that uh, in perspective. And I think, um, the thing that really sticks with me is how, you know, I, as I kind of say, I, you know, I'm in this mission and I'm really trying to be about justice and righteousness and all this other stuff. Um, and I interact with this black woman who is in this system that's a uh, white supremacist system. And it's, um, it's acting on her in ways that I'm not even like cognizant of mm -hmm. because I'm so ready to like move on and, and get, you know, get on. Um, and so it really kind of helped me to, to kind of, I hate to say humble cause you know, but it is kind of like humbling, like, oh, you know, you can really kind of mess yourself up, mess other people up that you care about yeah. by, um, by not being more thoughtful about when you're, you know, cause I, I feel like the, the system that we're working in it am it helps to amplify all those like anti-black patriarchal oh, it does absolutely you know it's part of the society right, right. it's it's um sort of it's it's a part it's a groove in our record right so to review the groove in my record had me mr black teacher matters Dry snitching to the white man on a black woman trying to help me out. A black woman fighting to keep her place, to keep my place in that class. And she got to contend with me and the children of the Indiana corn. That moment haunts me. Luckily, not because somebody got fired, but because it has more to teach me about myself. Hearing Crystal talk about the way I acted back then helped me realize that although criticizing her on an official academic form was petty, it had gone deeper than that for me. I was sitting up in her class with a Mr. Know-it-all attitude, trying to project and protect my own little male ego at her expense. 
and that made her job more difficult, made her less secure. And for that, I'm sorry. Crystal talked more about how it is to be a black woman navigating the white supremacy of academic spaces. I have found that, you know, when I'm teaching a, a larger lecture or something, it's much easier because I don't have that sort of emotional uh, engagement or I can be sort of um, formal, distant, mm-hmm. dump out the information without sort of getting, uh, navigating the intimacies, mm-hmm. um, whatever they are. You know, and we have to navigate them all the time at the same time while we're navigating the world. Like it was really hard for me to be teaching at, um, at you know, a small Kentucky college once I moved back. Um, and uh, when Barack Obama uh, won the presidency, mm-hmm. I was so excited. But so many people, you could feel the gloom at this small college. And not just the gloom, but um, fear and all kinds of things wrapped or cloaked in religion. And um, I remember that being a very hard semester to navigate. I remember walking from my office to um, my classroom and, and being called a nigger by the maintenance crew and then having to go into the class and navigate that like there were so many times of like okay if I can just teach and then drive my 45 minutes home safely um because it was a very it was nowhere near as physically violent as things are now but, but that was the beginning of it. That was when it, there was this sort of brawling underneath. And like when I got called a nigger and I turned around uh, to address them and I saw that they were in the golf carts that were the maintenance crew. Um, and then they tried to act like they didn't say anything. And it's like, do I stay here as one of the few black women on this campus and fight this I don't even know who they are I got to get to my class what do I do and I sort of just turned around and stormed in the other direction and um I didn't do much beyond that mm-hmm. I mean I did talk about it but I didn't didn't have a uh didn't file a formal formal complaint or anything it was just like So to to experience that and then have to navigate it and go into the classroom where I had few, if any, students that looks like me mm-hmm. and sort of navigate that and then navigate a faculty meeting and then haul butt to my car <laughs> and get back home uh, as safely and quickly as possible. So it was, um, I think it's a, a continuum, right, of what we what we have to deal with in the classroom and how we 
negotiate these things and then how we fill ourselves back up after being emptied out of all of that. And I think, you know, some of us like like me and you who who write, um, I think it's very easy. I know so many talented Black writers who are not writing or who are um, writing very little because of of being eaten up mm-hmm. by their institutions. You know, the meetings and the racism and, you know, these sort of um, both nurturing on one end and sort of um, almost violently sexist and racist on the on the other and then having to navigate with their colleagues in a meeting or meetings and then you know get back home uh, to their safety or get to their office and then try to be creative after that mm-hmm. really really difficult in 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 ways that again that I don't see that happening with a lot of our a lot of our colleagues and that is the life of a black teacher there's so much labor that goes unseen and uncompensated just to do right by your students your creative life your humanity and that's one of the reasons why it's important for us to share our stories and make that labor visible and celebrate his accomplishment. As fate would have it, I never got to have Crystal as a creative writing teacher. Her mother took ill and she had to leave IU. I appreciated her even more later on when I had a professor who sucked all the air out of the room and left me struggling to breathe, to write. But that's another story. For now, I'm just happy I get to keep learning from Professor Wilkinson. So I think that there was, let's call it, and all tensions aren't, aren't bad, but I think that there was a tension there you know, that made some kind of diamond, right? So you have these two things, because I think that we remember each other uh, fondly. Like, I don't. So a lot of people I've been in touch with uh, over the years, and it's funny because, you know, at the time I thought, well, Abdel won't be one of them. (laughs) (laughs) But but you have been. Like, we've, we've been in touch on social media every time I see you pop up on social media you know i smile and i'm uh happy and proud of of the work that you're doing um and and happy that that out of all of that you found me memorable um you know enough to want to interview me and enough to sort of that we've got this mutual ad- admiration in that way. Show you right. First off, thanks to Crystal Wilkinson for sharing so much of her time and wisdom. Her book, Birds of Opulence, was just selected by Kentucky Humanities for the 2021 Kentucky Reads. She's also got a book of poetry, Perfect Black, coming out in August that's guaranteed to be fire. You can pre-order it now, and if they give you any trouble, tell them. Let's, this ain't what I expected, like, let's go. Get on with it, woman. Thank you to my executive producer and chief editor, Candace Shakur. 
Thank you to my director of music selection, Benjamin Shakur. Thank you to my director of marketing, Lucille Shakur. Thank you to my innocence counselor and chief questioner, Sonny Shakur. And thank you for joining me on another episode of Black Teacher Matters. If you like what you hear, let somebody know. Press a like button. Share something on Facebook. Subscribe with your friendly local podcast provider. Write a review. And spread the word about the importance of black teachers. Thanks, and I'll see you next time.